Hello and welcome to The Alchemical Mind. Originally this was going to be the first episode in the Hermetica series. I've decided to push that back because there's been some interesting discussion going on with regards to the last couple episodes that I put out. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Ego Backlash. That's going to be the topic of this episode. It's going to be a, a rather interesting episode, maybe a little longer than usual. I don't know yet. Uh, if you were looking for the Hermetica episode, that will be out on Friday. We'll do part one on Friday and then part two on Monday. And uh, I'm very excited to dive into that. But a couple things came about, so I decided to throw this in to the rotation of episodes before doing the Hermetica. And uh, I'm splitting up the Hermetica and doing something about, uh, I, I, I don't know what to call it yet, something akin to how to smell BS, basically. That should be out sometime next week because I've, I've come upon these two things lately in terms of dealing with uh, mysticism and the occult and esoteric. So I want to talk about those things and, uh, and break up a book discussion as a result. Now, I guess before I dive into Ego Backlash, I should define what Ego Backlash is because I'm sure there's many of you that have not experienced Ego Backlash. Maybe if you've had a mystical experience or used a heavy dose of a psychedelic you did and you're aware aware of what it is but for those of you that have not I'm gonna dive into it in simple terms ego backlash is exactly what it sounds like it is a return a resurface of your ego of yourself that's literally what ego means in Latin ego means I it's a resurfacing of the I the lowercase self after returning from a mystical experience. Again, this could be through meditation, through prayer, through a solo meditation retreat, through psychedelics, and any way that you can achieve a mystical experience. Because when you are in one of these mystical experiences, when you experience that experience, you oftentimes have a near complete, if not complete, dissolution of the ego. And if you never had the experience, it's probably very hard to explain. But again, if you have, in particular, experience with psychedelics, maybe you are familiar with the concept. If you haven't, it's going to be a foreign concept to you. What do you mean you get rid of your ego? All you are is yourself. Well, when you achieve a mystical state, you realize it's not true at all. The interesting thing, of course, is when the mystical state disappears and it never truly completely disappears but dissipates where you are able to function once again in what we determine to be reality your sense of self comes back even stronger and this is this is the key aspect of ego backlash that not only does the ego return because you're still in a physical form dealing with everyday problems but sometimes it returns even stronger and that's ego backlash. Now, of course, to many of you, it might seem counterintuitive that if you're doing work to get rid of the lowercase self, the ego, that it would come back stronger. What sense does that make? Why are you doing this kind of work to get rid of the ego if it's just going to come back stronger? That's actually a good point. And I want to dive into that because I think there is a misconception as to the purpose of ego death as it's called or ego dissolution there's there's a, a an erroneous sense of what it is 
And I'm not saying anyone's teaching this stuff wrong. Everyone has different perspectives on this. We've talked about the, uh, the, the metaphor of touching the elephant, right? And different blind people feeling different parts of the elephant and experiencing what the elephant is in a different way, right? If you touch the trunk, maybe you think the elephant's a snake. If you touch the ear, you think it's, uh, I don't know, a palm frond or something, right? You touch the, tr the, the leg, you feel like it's a tree trunk. This is how mystical experience works, and this is why we have so many different systems of beliefs around the world throughout millennia of humanity. Because, of course, as people, we are finite beings. If we were not finite beings, if we could experience all of reality at the same time, we wouldn't be people, we'd be gods. And, of course, I always love to bring up Tatavamasi, you are it, which inherently implies that you are all of it, therefore you are God. But there is a difference, and the difference is in how you interpret the symbology. And I think this is a problem that is really, really deeply rooted into misconceptions throughout. So I'm going to dive very, very deep into creating the proper framework to identify these things when I talk about how to smell BS, and that'll be one of the episodes for next week. Because I listened to a podcast recently, and I was slightly perturbed, we'll say, at the erroneous use of symbology and language to interpret a point when the point had no merit. I have no problem with anyone interpreting their experience in any way that they'd like. But there has to come a point where we have to find some basis to interpret that information. And when the information is interpreted in a way that makes no sense, we kind of need to put that aside and not give it any merit. You know, there's a lot of BS floating around right now with, with politics and religion and doomsday stuff going on and COVID and this, that, and the other. And I want to make sure that when people present you with some set of ideas that they base on whatever. And the example I'm going to start with is uh, actually a clip from this podcast because this person began uh, using linguistics and breaking down a particular word into its constituent roots. And uh, unfortunately, they used the incorrect language to find the root, uh, a language that's completely unrelated to what they were talking about. So we'll talk about that next week, but I want to set up this episode as somewhat of a basis for that because they are intrinsically tied everything that i talk about in this podcast is tied in together i try to make every episode work out of its own merit but a lot of these things do end up intersecting and of course symbology is extremely important because we need to have the proper framework in order to be able to interpret the experience and i'm going to talk a little bit about that on this episode with a particular person who's having a tough time with ego death. So we'll talk about her experience. And of course, I talked at length about my solo meditation retreat and the outcomes of that. I talked about my psychedelic experience, uh, not in full detail. And I, I was talking to someone, I can't remember who, it might have been Justin from the Dharma Junkie podcast, about how I maybe I should have allowed myself to make it a little bit longer and dove deeper into the experience. So there may be a follow-up to that at some point in the next month or two, 
where I dive into some of the uh, mystical stuff that I kind of left out just to make it more a cohesive story. But Ego Backlash is real. It's very real. And I've experienced this myself. I'm sure many of you listening have also experienced Ego Backlash where, you know, you have this experience where you're kind of floating in the ether and you meet, say, maybe you meet entities, right? Or you, you start putting pieces of the puzzle together as to how life works and how the universe works. And, you know, it's not an ultimate answer, obviously. After all, we're finite beings. But you start getting pieces of the puzzle together. And, and when you do that, what ends up happening is you kind of start succeeding the, your level of awareness of things. It, it kind of goes to a higher level. Now, this leads to problems, naturally. And for those of you in the audience that pay attention to these kind of things, you can probably immediately see why. Because a lot of times when people have a mystical experience of any sort, they come back thinking that they are a prophet, or that they're clairvoyant, or that they literally held the hand of God, or even worse, that they literally are God. And it's fine to realize that, but without context, you literally feel that that's what you are. And that's not what you are. You're simply a part of that infinite consciousness that you can consider God. So some people come back from these experiences and you say, you know, I saw Jesus and Jesus told me this, right? Or I saw the Virgin Mary, I saw Krishna, I, uh, whatever, I went to, to the machine elf world and the machine elves told me uh, the world's ending in uh, 2020 whatever it might be all these experiences now this is not to say that these are not true experiences I dove a little bit into this over the last couple episodes into how you determine if what you're experiencing is real not or not I talked a little bit about it when I was on the mind escape podcast so go check that episode out as well. I think it's uh, it's not the latest one. It's two previous. But we did dive into that a little bit. And Mike and I have had some discussions about that privately as well. Because oftentimes you, you, you see these kind of things where people have this experience and they come back and think that they're God or a prophet or whatever. And also part of the problem is sometimes people don't understand how to interpret those things and they go in the opposite direction where they feel like everything's meaningless because they saw these wonderful things in their trip or their mystical uh, experience and don't know how to interpret it. And now that experience is so profound that it's very hard to navigate in the real world because you see that the real world is not real. It's just an illusion. So these are the kind of the, the two opposite extremes i guess that you can get from a mystical experience and of course there's variations in between but the most important thing is always to remember that in order to really understand and appreciate the experience you have to be centered because when you are centered you avoid these extremes you avoid the severe bouts of depression that can be caused by realizing the true nature of things you realize the enormous narcissism and an egotistic attitude and and self-righteousness that can arise from being someone that saw this when most people don't and you feel like that makes you special 
You're not special. It's one thing we should always remember. Nobody is special. I'm not special. You're not special. Your child's not special. Your spouse is not special. Your boss is not special. Your preacher is not special. Your guru is not special. Your president is not special. No, Nobody is special. Because none of us matter because none of us are real. We're just illusions. We're projections. We're, we're holograms, you can even say. We're simulated beings. Whatever, whatever, whatever words you want to use to express what it is that we are. And no one person is any better than another. We're all simply just different perspectives of an experience of an ultimate consciousness. Very simple. Very simple. Now, if you haven't had an mystical experience, you don't understand what that means. And that's fine. But those of you that have had them may kind of understand where I'm coming from. And this is not a, there, there's nothing to do here with religion, right? This is not a religious thing. I was an atheist for, you know, the past 20 years of my life, basically, since I left going to church when I was about 18. And of course, I've dabbled in all kinds of religious systems. I've talked about this before. You can go listen to the very first episode where I did the introduction on how this podcast kind of came to be. Now, maybe I've been all religious systems because I've, I've dabbled in everything. Well, almost everything. But again, the most important thing is to be centered. And in order to be centered, you need to be able to hold multiple ideas in your head at once and figure out how those things combine. There is a fantastic quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald. And he said, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Now, if more people did this, we'd have less problems in the world naturally, right? We wouldn't have all this stupid infighting between Republicans and Democrats or blacks and whites or poor and rich. These are all concoctions of your imagination. None of these categories actually exist. You allow them to exist and you give them your authority. Go back and listen to the three-part series on giving up and regaining your authority. One of the more popular series that I've done on this podcast so far. Now, the difference between partaking in either of these extremes is the, the sense in which people allow the experience to be shared. So the problem with going to the narcissistic extreme, the the massive ego backlash where you you understand that there is no self but you base your whole existence on that idea and therefore you're back to being a self i'm talking about cult leaders and those kind of personalities there's very little that can be done to help those people because if you feel like you are the ultimate authority without understanding that everyone's authority is equal to yours, there's no helping you. Where that changes is when you're on the opposite spectrum, where you feel like because of your ego death, you can no longer participate in reality. You can be helped. Now, I'm not saying either way is you know completely arbitrary and that there's no way to regain the center from there. Of course there is. But when people get a little bit of a, a taste of power, sometimes it's very hard. And if you already have a sense where you don't have the ego and you don't want to participate anymore, it's easier to regain some of that power, to regain the center, than to go from the other way around. That's why a lot of cults end up getting into you know, serious consequences. 
you know, Amshinrikia, the, the guy that led that, he seemed like an interesting guy, had some interesting ideas, but he kind of misunderstood his Buddhist path into a way that basically said, hey, we just gotta, we gotta destroy the world. The way for people to achieve enlightenment is for not to be here, for them to realize that, so we have to destroy their physical bodies. Okay, I mean, I understand the point, and we'll talk about that at some point in the very near future when I dive a little bit into morality and the non-existence of good or evil. But see, he missed that. He missed that bit. Or guys like you know, David Koresh ends up getting a bunch of people killed and himself because of this idea that he's a prophet or God. But of course, everyone's responsible for their own actions. Everyone's responsible for their own well-being or you know, deciding to live or die. That's your, that's your choice. I'm not a proponent of suicide, but that's your choice. I'm going to talk a little bit about that again in a couple of weeks on, a, on a, an episode discussing exclusively that idea. Because this kind of came upon as part of this discussion of ego death and the ego backlash. I want to read this comment uh, with regards to ego death so I can give a, maybe a little more detailed explanation of this. I see countless people obsessed with the idea of ego death, and personally, I don't quite think it's what everybody thinks it is. I see people posting trip reports about their intentions being to kill the ego, and then they tell all about how grand it was to experience the ego death and how changed they are, but this is not just ego grooming itself. Having the intention of killing the ego will only keep the ego intact, because it implies you have control of what's happening, and only the ego would believe such a thing. If someone supposedly experiences ego death and then boasts about how wonderful it was, and then it seems they have only inflated their ego. If somebody truly experienced ego death, then they would likely never feel the need to speak of it. I think this person made some pretty good points. In fact, if you follow kind of the Buddhist tradition, this is really kind of at the core of the meaning of if you see the Buddha in the woods, kill him. If you don't understand the ideology, that makes no sense. What do you mean? If I'm a Christian and I see Jesus, I'm not going to kill Jesus. Right? I'm going to run up to him. I'm going to hug him. I'm going to kiss him. I'm going to whatever. Touch his feet. People used to touch, touch each other's feet, wash each other's feet back in the day, right? Now, I think what's interesting about the comment is that it does kind of get to the core of one of the problems. In that people oftentimes seek experience... Simply because it sounds so cool, right? It sounds so cool. I'm going to be enlightened. I'm going to meet God. I'm going to become infinite. All these things. And of course, you can achieve these things. But you're not going to achieve it in one experience. I would argue you would probably never achieve this. And that may sound counterintuitive to some people. Well, why are you doing all this work if you're never going to achieve your, your goal? Well, again, it goes back to that basic concept, the basic Vedanta concept of Tattvamasi. You are it. Why do you need to go and kill your ego when there's no ego to begin with? There is no self. Why do you want to kill it? But of course, you would only be able to say that if you've been able to kill your ego in some regards. Again, I don't think you can actually indefinitely kill your ego. There's always a part of you that remains within you. I think this is a problem when people talk about this concept of, of ego, death, and enlightenment, where they feel like it's something that they can achieve. 
If you were a fully enlightened being, you'd be God. It's very simple. And you're not. You're still a human being. You have this mystical experience. You come back. You gain something out of it. You become a better person. Your ego's still there. The ego doesn't go away. It might dissipate. If you truly understand, it might become smaller. But it doesn't go away. It never goes away. If you truly achieved 100% ego death, you would die. Like literally die. Not a figurative ego death thing. You would physically literally die. And why is that? It's very simple. The ego is in charge of maintaining your survival. If you have no ego, you have no drive to survive. Because according to nature, you come into existence and you get to a point in your life where you're old enough to procreate and you procreate. And then you really, by nature, have no purpose any longer. Your only purpose is to procreate. And for all nature cares, you could, you could die right now. Nature doesn't care. It might sound harsh, but it's reality. We can talk about purpose and all kinds of things. And yes, there is that. But according to nature, according to physical reality, you've served your purpose. Now, Mike and I talked a little bit more about this on that Mind Escape uh, episode, so you can go check that out. I'm going to talk a little bit more about purpose uh, in an upcoming episode as well. And that will be tied into an episode in which I talk about uh, duty and uh, how to deal with that as well. But according to nature, that is your purpose. And so once you have children, you don't need to be around. I mean, yes, like, you know, you need to be around long enough so your children are maybe old enough to be able to procreate themselves. But after that, you're no longer needed, right? And again, that may sound harsh, but nature is harsh. Nature is violent. Animals don't go to the store and, you know, get a box of cereal or, you know, prepackaged burgers or whatever it is. Animals live a hard life. Humans used to live a hard life. Where they get up and probably constantly have to be aware of predators trying to get them. Hunters being in the woods trying to shoot the deer, whatever it is. They constantly have to fight these things. And we're fortunate enough where we've created this environment around ourselves where we don't really need to focus on that. Right? I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you probably live in a decent home, right? At least you have a home. You probably have a vehicle. You have a job. Right? You get up in the morning. You eat your cereal. You eat, get your coffee, whatever, your eggs. You go to work, right? You make money. Everything's nice. You're in the air conditioning. Very comfortable. You come home. You watch some TV. You get a bed in a nice, comfortable bed. Nature isn't that way. We've managed to kind of domesticate ourselves into a state where we can kind of bypass that. Now, yes, of course, there's still people living in the world that have to deal with the threat of a predator or you know, natural disasters, all kinds of things. But at least in the developed world, we, we have it pretty easy. We have it pretty easy. We don't need to worry about these things. And that's kind of caused a problem. And maybe I'll talk about this when I deal with uh, anxiety and depression a little bit in a future episode. Where it kind of causes this sense of like, eh, life just kind of sucks, right? You get mental illness, you get severe depression, you get anxiety, people get addicted to pain, pain prescriptions and, and other kinds of drugs. Or get addicted to gambling or watching TV because like it, life is 
just so easy in a modern society. I'm not saying we don't have, everyone's got problems, right? I'm not saying we don't have problems. But compared to how we lived, I mean, maybe 100 years ago, 200 years ago, but go back 500 years, 1,000 years, 2,000, 5,000, 10,000 years. For the majority of our existence, life has not been easy. And so the way we handled those stressors was different. And now we don't have a lot of stressors. And that stresses us out. That's the crazy part about it. But, you know, this reminds me a little bit of, uh, there's a Buddhist story about this. I think I might have mentioned this on that, uh, that Mind Escape episode. Where the monk goes to, you know, his master and he's like, Master, I, you know, I'm worried all the time. How do I stop worrying about things? And he's like, well, you know, just, just think about what worries you and worry a little bit less. So... The monk goes and, and tries to do work on this practice, and he works on it and works on it. You know, weeks go by, months go by. He just can't get rid of it, right? He's, he's still worried about these things. And he goes back to the master and says, Master, I, I'm still worried all the time. What do I do? It's like, well, you know, maybe worry a little bit less. Right? Think about it a little bit less. So of course, the guy goes and he, he tries to do this, but he can't get rid of it. And it goes on and on and on, right? All turtles all the way down. And the master finally says to him, well, maybe you have nothing to worry at all. And that's, that's when it clicks, right? That's when you get it. And this is why the work gets done. Because you have to do the work to get to a point where you understand there's no work to do. Because you're already there. You are it. And of course, experience-seeking is problematic because you feel like well you know joe down the street meditated for 20 years and he saw jesus or the buddha or krishna or allah or you know muhammad whoever Does that mean that i need to meditate for 20 years maybe i'll you know i'll just take some psychedelics i'll take the shortcut i'll take the psychedelics and then you get yourself into problems because you take psychedelics and you get the experience but you don't have the framework to understand what the experience is about. You get depressed. Experience seeking is dangerous. In particular, if you don't know what the experience is actually like. I talk about you know, walking the path and knowing the path all the time. And that's very true for seeking mystical experience. Of course it feels great. It feels awesome to feel like you're one with the universe. Whatever language you want to use, right? meeting God or the machine nails or whatever. It feels awesome to to be able to piece these things together in a way that you normally can't in just conscious waking being every day. But when you get that experience, can are you able to interpret it? Are you able to bring that back when you come back to reality? Because of course you're going to come back to reality and your ego is going to come back with you, maybe stronger. That's why I really love the the 10 ox herding pictures. It's a, a classic Zen Buddhist idea of how to get over the ego. And I'm not going to go into the whole thing very in-depth, but, uh, but it's very interesting how this 10 ox herding pictures metaphor works. Because, you know, the, the guy goes and tries to find the ox, right? And you have these three, 10 different steps, which are basically the 10 steps of enlightenment. And different traditions have similar stories to this. Uh, sometimes there are different numbers. 
I think uh, in in like Christian mysticism, it's like a seven-step process. Uh, different uh, ideologies have you know like an eight-step or a three-step or a five-step, whatever it is. In Zen Buddhism, you have this ten ox herding pictures thing, and I like it because the pictures are just the pictures are worth a thousand words. So you can look at these pictures and kind of understand the metaphor that the uh, the Zen Buddhists are trying to go with because. Now, Zen Buddhists oftentimes talk in riddles, and so it may be difficult to understand what the words mean, but it's very easy to see what the pictures mean. And so, you know, you start off searching for the ox, right? So you go in search of your enlightenment, and, and then you find the tracks, right? Maybe you get a little glimpse of something during a, a meditation session, or, uh, you know, you take some mushrooms or whatever, wh however you experience it. You start finding the tracks, you're like, okay. I'm I'm on the way to enlightenment. I start seeing things. And this is when people start falling into problems, right? Because just because you found the tracks, because you had a little bit of an experience, doesn't make you a prophet or God or anything else. Because it's not just turtles all the way down, it's turtles all the way up. You find the tracks, you keep going, and you keep searching for the ox, and finally you see the ox. Ha! Huh. Here's the glimpse of the experience. I'm aware of the infinite. Me go and try to catch the ox. Of course, like you want this thing, right? You wanna you wanna achieve enlightenment. Let me go catch the ox. So you start going, you hunt the ox. And maybe that takes you days, maybe? I think that's possible. Months, years, decades, an entire lifetime, maybe. And say so at some point you you find it. You find the ox. You've been looking for it, you find it, you you capture it, and you decide to tame it, you domesticate the ox. Aha, now I got it, right? I'm enlightened. I understand how the universe works. But of course, you don't realize we're only in step five right now. And there's ten steps to the ten ox herding pictures. So you're like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to head back home. I'm going to share this knowledge. So you ride the ox back home. And as you're riding the ox back home, you start learning how it works, right? You, you achieve some kind of dominance over this thing. Right? You're, you're getting over this ego thing a little bit, but it's a wild ox, right? So it fights back a lot. You get back home and you realize, holy crap, where's, where's the ox? The ox is gone. I've been riding this ox, right? I went out, I looked for it, I finally caught it, I rode it all the way back home. Now the ox is gone. What, what the hell? All this work, what was it for? I had it and now it's gone. Right? This is one of the steps. It's step seven. So then you realize the ox is gone because I'm the ox. I've been the ox the entire time. There was no ox. There was no me. We were one thing. Nothing separated us. Okay, so now we're getting another step of the enlightenment experience. You're getting higher and higher on this thing. Step nine is return to origin. And return to origin is interesting because... This is kind of when you're like, oh, well, holy crap, I wasted all this time trying to find the ox. I don't exist. The ox doesn't exist. All that exists is, is the source, infinity. What the hell? But of course, once you realize that is when you achieve the final step. And the final step is, is full Buddhahood, right? Full enlightenment. Where you walk the path of the man and ox as one and as nothing because neither one existed, and you achieve true Buddhahood. 
You're walking around, no, no shoes, you're dirty, but you're, you're so happy. Because even though you have nothing and you realize none of it exists, none of it matters, and none of it is real, you're perfectly content in that state of existence. And then you have full control. You become God, right? So the trees start bursting into flowers in the story. Now, of course, for the Buddhists, getting kind of to this point is, is the preferred method, right? So there is the Buddha, but many people can kind of become the Buddha. And then when you achieve Buddhahood, you have a choice. You have a choice. You can either decide to continue living in your perfect enlightenment and be a full Buddha, or return to Earth and kind of share the, the knowledge that you've gained, right? So you're a bodhisattva. Those are the two concepts in Buddhism. So what I'm about to say doesn't doesn't go against Buddhist ideology per se. Some of you may make me see it that way. But as long as you're in this body, you can't be a full Buddha. You can be a bodhisattva, but you can't be a full Buddha. Because you still have that ego. Of course, naturally, this can evolve or maybe devolve into a discussion of, of suicide, right? Quite easily. Well, you know, if I achieve full Buddhahood, I don't need to be here anymore. And that's actually an argument that's come upon humanity for a very long time as well. There have been different mystical sects to, throughout history that believe this is the choice in order to achieve oneness with God. Okay? We'll use that term because some of these sects include, like the Sufi, for example, right? The... Uh, the Muslim mystics, and includes many Christian mystics, and of course it includes very hardcore Buddhists and Hindus and others. You know, the Sufis have a, there's actually a term for the ritual that they undertake, and I, I don't recall the name of, of the ritual, because I don't, I don't keep notes of this podcast, I just kind of talk out of my head. But they have a ritual, and actually I believe it was banned in India, I, it might still be banned, to partake of this ritual. They still do it, of course, because it's their religion. And, you know, if they feel like that's what they need to do, they do it. But basically, it entails uh, the person that wants to achieve oneness with Allah to basically uh, lay down and, and perform a sort of meditation for days and days, sometimes weeks, sometimes it can take months, where they don't do anything but lay down and meditate. They don't eat, they don't drink, they don't get up to go to the bathroom. They just sit in contemplation of Allah. And so, of course, naturally the body passes away because they're not getting any substance. Right? So it's like a ritual suicide. The, the Cathars in the Middle Ages had a similar idea. Cathars are very interesting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do an episode on the Cathars at some point. Because they went really far, right? The, the Gnostic Christians... And the Cathars wore a sect of Gnosticism, believe that the world is inherently evil. And so by extension, having a physical body is evil. And so they also had this a very similar ritual to the Sufi in which they committed this ritual suicide where they wouldn't eat or drink for weeks and months at a time. And they had a whole system developed around themselves, kind of like a, a caste system, you could say which kind of helped people get into the state. And of course, they went, I mean, they went really far, right? Like you couldn't have children because why would you want to bring children into an evil world? Things like that. 
you know, if you're a Christian, maybe Gnosticism's a little heretical, so you're like, oh, you know, the church would never do that, but you know, the church did do that. Right? There were there were ascetic monks and during the Middle Ages that would lock themselves in boxes and perform the exact ritual. These boxes would be built inside cathedrals and churches. And uh, if you go to Europe, from my understanding, there uh, many of these cathedrals and churches still have these boxes inside them where people went through this process and, and died. I don't know if the, the bodies are still in there or not. I'm sure they buried them, but they had, the boxes are there. This was a ritual that they did. They sat in complete darkness and contemplate, contemplated on God and did not eat or drink until they died. You know, you, you have stories of Buddhist monks doing the same thing. Now, look up the uh, the Buddhist mummies, for example, where the the story is the monks have achieved such a high level of enlightenment that their body basically doesn't pass away, right? Like months after they die, there's still body heat coming out of their bodies, and they're, you know, preserved. Their bodies are preserved for, you know, even to now, hundreds of years later, after their deaths. And it's all through this self-control of mind over body. So none of these are new ideas, right? They've been around for a long time. Just our perception of how people should live has changed quite a bit. And so these kind of things are obviously frowned upon. And again, I, I don't condone suicide in any way. But this is a, a fact of history. These are things that happened. Because some of these people started to see, well... The only way for me to be fully enlightened is to not be in a physical body, and this is the way that I have to do it. And it wasn't considered suicide or evil or anything like that, because you were doing it to achieve oneness with God. Now, just because you can't have full, complete ego disillusion, again, maybe you want to partake in one of these rituals, right? And then you do have it. But because you can never dissolve it, you're always going to be here. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Your ego is going to guide you to go eat and go to the bathroom and go to work. You can achieve a level of enlightenment and still be a completely normal person. Just because you achieve a mystical state in any way that you achieve it doesn't mean you need to go and become a, a hermit in the woods or become a monk or nun or whatever. Akir. And that's the problem with this idea that we have of what enlightenment is and what awakening is and what ego death is. Is that it? Just it's become a symbol. It's just it's just a pretty picture. It's just a pretty picture. I, t I told the story. Uh, man, I don't even know how many episodes ago it was. With my wife, where we kind of went out and started walking around in nature, and she saw some trees, and she's like, "Oh my god, that looks just like a picture." And of course, that's preposterous because the picture is made from that thing that you're experiencing. And that's kind of what mystical experience has become for a lot of people, because we don't have the linguistic framework to understand what it is. All we have is stories in movies and TV shows and, uh, you know, in books and quote-unquote gurus on the internet talking about these kind of things. People don't have the experiences and they don't really want the experience. Who wants to die, right? You don't want to die. Maybe if you have full ego disillusion, you don't, you don't care, right? Because it doesn't matter. It's Death is just the next step. But you always have this ego, and that's okay. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. You can learn to control it. 
and we're going to talk about this a little bit more in uh, in two weeks, uh, where I'm going to talk about why it's okay to hate something. It's okay to have emotions, and not just good emotions, just any emotion. It's okay to be angry and hate things. Fine. We've, for some reason, torn all this apart from our experience. Like, it's something bad, like... And if we don't do it the right way, we're going to go to hell and burn in eternal fire. It's nonsense. Nonsense. What would, what would God put you here to have an experience and then say, oh, you did it wrong. You're going to hell. Especially if no one tells you anything. If you don't know how to experience it. You think an omnipotent being would walk around laughing at people because they do stupid things? That's preposterous. God doesn't care. God just wants the experience, and that's what you are. You're a holographic projection of God's consciousness. That's all it is. But ego backlash is very real. It's very real. Now, when I had the experience that I talked about on the previous episode, I was, man, I was, I was a little depressed. I'm not going to lie. I was depressed for about two months, three months. Because through all the work that I put in, I didn't, I didn't know what to do with this. I thought I had the vocabulary, that I understood the symbology, that I had the framework, and it was it was beyond me. So yeah, I was depressed. And it's taken me a year and a half to get to a point where I don't feel depressed about it. This is what, in some circles, you would call uh, like the dark night of the soul. I'm going to talk about dark night of the soul in a separate episode, because that's kind of a, a Christian mystic concept in, in many regards. So I want to talk about it from a Christian perspective. I know oftentimes I tend to lean a little bit towards the eastern side, and uh, so that's what I'm going to tell the story next, because uh, that's the, way to, the, the wrong way to look at it, too. And just because you happen to like somebody's terminology over others doesn't mean that any one is better than any other, or that they're mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. They're all the same thing. They're just different parts of the elephant. So this person commented that uh, they experienced uh, ego death. Four years ago. This is actually really interesting. And uh, she and I went back and forth for a couple days on this topic because uh, she she's very confused about her experience. I experienced ego death four years ago. I still experience it to this day, even though I've been sober. I should reiterate, this person tried psychedelics one time, experienced ego death, and has been massively depressed for four years as a result. It's as if nothing exists as if I'm in hell. I question if I'm in hell. Or it feels like I'm in a totally different universe and I have left reality behind. I have lost sight of reality. Can I please get some advice on how to overcome this? I believe in God, so I'm not big on Alan Watts. Uh, And this is what I was talking about, right? Because Alan Watts, some people are very drawn to him. He's a fantastic speaker, of course. But Alan Watts trained in a Buddhist monastery, and so much of his perspective comes from the Buddhist ideology. And and sometimes people get turned off by that, in particular if they're maybe more hardcore Christian, right? More of a Western perspective that in many regards is very different. The thing is, the only thing that's different is the words that are used. The concepts are the same, regardless. But a lot of times in, in many, many different Christian circles, you're not giving this, this framework to understand things, right? The only explanation is, well, God. 
Well, why do things happen this way? Well, God wants it that way. Why do I have a shitty job? Well, God wants it that way. Why am I rich and, and he's poor? Well, God wants it that way. Right? So you get into this weird, vicious circle of just like everything just explained away by God. And number one, you end up having no responsibility for things. That's a problem. You feel like everything that happens, you owe it to something outside of yourself. And of course, that's a problem. But this person has some very severe issues as a result and has had issues for many, many years. Because she got to a place where she saw things, and I'm not going to relay what the actual experience was, but she saw things and saw things that she was not prepared to understand. So can you have a spontaneous awakening? 100%. I 100% believe that. I don't know if I would have wanted a spontaneous awakening. Again, I'm not saying I'm enlightened or anything special, right? But I have had awakening experiences. If I had had the experience this person had with no training, with no background, with no understanding of what I was getting into before getting into it, I would have probably lost my mind too. And I know that a lot of people feel this way, where maybe they will use psychedelics as that's an easy way to get a mystical experience. A lot of people take psychedelics one time and say, well, nope, I'm done. Never again. Because you don't know how to handle it. And again, if you've never had the experience, you don't know what I'm talking about. If you have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because it's very difficult to process. You're in a completely realm of different realm of existence. And most of us can't even traverse the, the realm that we live in now, much less a realm that's completely different, turned on its side. And if you come from a background that doesn't provide you with a way to get answers for yourself, that simply relies on listening to other people's answers, then definitely you're going to be completely lost. And sh she's lost. She's very lost. Now, she and I did have a great discussion. We talked about Meister Eckhart. We talked about uh, Pseudodionysus the Arapegite, one of my favorites. Uh, we're going to revisit him soon-ish because that's the language she understands. She grew up a Christian, and there's no point in me giving her any explanation of you know the 10 ox-herding pictures because that will mean nothing to her. I mean, maybe it'll mean a little bit something to her, but she won't fully understand it because that's not the framework she was raised with. It's not the language she speaks. I could, I could just be speaking Chinese and it would be the same thing. So we talked about these two mystics a little bit and kind of, I, I nudged through a particular way. Because I felt like that's something, a way of expressing mystical experience that she would understand. And I hope that it works for her. Because it's, it's horrible to get lost. So bad to get lost. And it's so easy without the framework. Now, of course, as listening to the story, some of you may have caught on that this is not truly ego death. This is a prime example of ego backlash, and that's why I wanted to talk about this on the podcast. Because, of, yes, she did experience a level of ego death, but the fact that she felt like she'd been living in hell for all this time immediately gave me the feeling that it's not because she, she lost her ego, it's because it dissipated and it came back stronger. Because her entire life she was raised to believe in one thing, right? Jesus Christ, the Savior, all these things that are tied into Christian beliefs. And that viewpoint did not mesh with what she saw. So of course she's going to think she's in hell. 
she has no understanding of the place that she's in. We'll say physically, I guess maybe objectively would be a better term. While she's in the experience, a very real experience, tangible experience. But, of course, after. Because if she had achieved true ego death, none of these things would happen. She would be perfectly content with the place that she's in. And of course, again, that's part of the problem with seeking experience. She was just trying to have a good time, got a partial awakening, and has had a terrible existence for four years. That's hard. How do you deal with that? She can't talk about it with anyone. Because, you know, there's still the stigma if you do a psychedelic, for some reason you're a bad person. And she comes from a very hardcore Christian family, so of course she can't talk about doing psychedelics or, you know, meeting God. That's preposterous. Not, that's not for her to do. That's for her preacher to do, talk to God. And the preacher talks to her. The thing is, when you get to one of these experiences, it's very important to understand there's nothing wrong with it. It's not good or bad. Those things are just categories. They're just symbols. They don't exist. You have to find a way to hold these ideologies together in one mind. Like the quote that I rented off earlier, the Fitzgerald quote. But yes, it is very hard to do. It is very hard to start losing your ego. Because it's literally dissolving the thing that you are. Right? You no longer become Martin or dad or husband or brother or whatever whatever category you want to use for yourself. You're just experience. You're just complete, utter experience. Trapped in a physical body. And you can't take this too far. You know, I see people, in particular in like the Vedanta community, which I find really interesting. I, I, I love Vedanta. I think Vedanta is fascinating. I think it fits into a lot of these things. But I sometimes I see people that practice non-duality which is the translation of Vedanta, if you're not familiar, people that practice non-duality, that get stuck in this concept of, like, they can't say I, or they put it in quotes. And, you know, I part of, part of me gets it. I, I get why you want to do that, right? If you notice, if you've been listening to the podcast since I started, I no longer begin with This is Martin. And part of the reason for that is I feel like it's just a label, and it's not really who I am. I don't know exactly who I am and what name I want to use. I mean, you know, I'm fine with, you know, my friends and family still calling me by my name. That's fine. I have to still exist in physical reality with the society around me and family and friends and things like that. That's totally fine. But I don't necessarily identify with that. But but to go as far as to not want to use the pronoun I or we or whatever, to put it in quotes, just it seems a little too much for me. It seems like you're trying maybe too hard to get the point across. And I, I get the sentiment behind it, but the problem is it I mean it doesn't really matter how it comes off, but it comes off the wrong way. Because for people that haven't reached that state of being able to no longer identify with an I, it just seems like you're kind of being a pompous a-hole, right? And sure, like you got to a point where you no longer need to use an I, and that's awesome. But how can you share these ideas if you don't speak the language of a person who doesn't understand them? You have to use plain language. You have to have a framework and be able to translate that framework across different segments of people. Because everyone thinks differently and experiences things differently. 
Anyways, I hope you enjoyed the episode on Ego Backlash. Maybe I'll dive back into this at some point uh, you know, in the next six months or so because there's a lot more ground to cover. And, uh, of course, I'll talk a little bit more about this during the Dark Knight of the Soul episode. Uh, I think maybe that'll be coming up in September, October. I haven't decided yet. If you want to follow me, you can find me on Twitter, at MindAlchemical. I'd love to hear from you, so if you want to send me an email, martin at thealchemicalmind.com. Best place to do that. And uh, leave a review, share with your friends, whatever you want to do. If you don't, that's fine. But I hope if you listen, you find some meaning and even just one bit of knowledge that I drop on the podcast. That's going to be it for this episode. I'll be back on Friday with part one of the Hermetica. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait. I just recently reread it and uh, still rings very true. So that's going to be it. I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, remember that you are it. Mm-hmm.